This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 321. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great, as always, to have you here. An honor and a pleasure. I have to say, today feels sort of uh, a bit like the morning after the panic set in with the media. On Friday, we had these revelations about the opening, or the I shouldn't say opening, it was never closed, the continuing investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. And you can tell, because I'm somebody who all, all, I, all I do, day in and day out, is look at the various narratives constructed on news sites and by different pundits and journalists and such all over the world and try to come up with something special and different here to share with you that's a sort of distillation of all that I can see from all that all that's out there. And so I try to be as in touch with the news cycle as I can be, not following it, but actually reading between the lines and looking at the agendas and pulling out from what's presented a greater truth. And what I see happening right now, and and obviously no one could have expected this unless they knew that the Comey announcement was going to come, is that they're kind of out of ammunition for the time being. Or at least this wasn't wasn't a part of the playbook. They had been running the playbook for weeks, uh, one after another woman coming out, saying that Trump had grabbed or groped or in some way sexually misbehaved. It, it, they sort of launched this whole broadside, uh, starting out with the tape with Billy Bush, whom I had never heard of before. And you, you could tell that this was all a construct, that they had been holding on to this. And just like with Alicia Machado, Miss Universe or whatever, and he called her Miss Piggy, and they had known about that for a long time. These were all a part of the script. These were all things that were supposed to happen. The Democrats were going to use their allies in the media. And as we know now, when we say allies in media, we mean allies who are willing to break ethical boundaries. We mean allies who are open, blatant, naked partisans pretending not to be or at least pretending to be of some level of scruple, of some basic dignity. I'm not going to have to name any names here, but I'm sure we can all think of some people that in the media right now have been exposed to be uh, 
liars and frauds. So we've this has been laid bare for us in a way that none of us could have anticipated. It is fascinating. It is disheartening. And today I see there's a, a newfound fascination with the effort to retake Mosul. Oh, isn't that a surprise? All of a sudden you have some sites and some news organizations that really want to get in the weeds about what's going on in Mosul, an operation that's going to be happening for at least weeks, probably months. I mean, depending on what phase of the operation we're talking about, the clearing phase will take at least weeks, uh, could be longer. But today there's a lot of interest in Mosul. Today there's a lot of interest in a lot of things because they don't have the -the off-the-shelf, ready-to-go Trump bash stuff because what happened on Friday messed up the gears of the system. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Uh, And they also, I don't think, were prepared for the WikiLeaks revelations, which, look, as I've said, bad people can be capable of doing good things. And it is really interesting to see just how incestuous and how connected the various elites in our government truly are. We've gotten a better sense of that now because of WikiLeaks. We have seen time and again the connections between those who pretend to be either working in the interest of the American people or at least pretend to be uh, working for a political party but not necessarily a candidate. What you see is that Hillary has her people. There is a Clinton cabal and they're attached to her the way that people would have been attached to a, a you know, Renaissance-era prince in the Italian, uh, in the Italian city-states, right? You know, back in the day of uh, Lorenzo de' Medici or something. I mean, people are, their entire future is tied up in one individual or one family. In this case, it's the Clinton family. And they will sell out other people from their cause. They'll do anything that advances the one family, even if it is harmful to the greater group or the greater good, the greater good which they purportedly support in some way. We see the Clinton cabal is incredibly loose when it comes to security. I mean, these are now things that we weren't supposed to know. This is the narrative that has emerged that they weren't prepared for. And what is just mind-blowing to me is that neither the Trump campaign whatever that means to you. It's like a Twitter account and a lot of free media coverage, but still, the Trump campaign or what what does exist for the conservative media has not been able to do this. These are self-inflicted wounds by the Clinton campaign, and the most important information that we have access to is only because of a sketchy third party with interests that we should not trust, that I do not trust, that acts illegally to obtain information. And that's it. There was no... This should be a walk in the park for a normal Democratic candidate. I mean, Trump should be behind by 12 or 15 points. Some unimaginable number. The Trump campaign has no oppo on Hillary. Have you learned anything new about Hillary Clinton in the last 60 days because of the Trump campaign? The answer is no. I know people are saying, oh, there's... There's collusion with Russia. They don't have the sophistication to collude with Russia. And that's a knock on the Trump campaign, quite honestly. They're they're not doing that. That's not what's happening here. Uh, 
and, and what WikiLeaks motivations are, I can't begin to tell you. I don't know. I, Julian Assange seems like an incredibly shady character to me. I do agree with my friends like John Schindler that they're clearly acting at the behest of Russia, which means Russian intelligence and the Russian state security apparatus. But to what end and in, in what specific motivations I could point to for every incident, I don't know. I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you that. I do know that we have uh, James O'Keefe did some good work. By the way, that's been completely buried by the mainstream press. I mean, by and you know, we say mainstream press, and it sounds like this right wing talking point or something. Well, okay, they have the they have the TV broadcast networks. They have all but one of the cable news networks uh, pushing Democrat, and we're not supposed to notice this. You got over 90 percent of journalists uh, giving money to Hillary Clinton, over 90 percent of federal employees giving money to Hillary Clinton. We're, we're just supposed to pretend that these things don't matter, even when we have the numbers, the data to support a specific thesis. In this case, the thesis is that there is an enormous, an enormous uh, apparatus that is pushing for Hillary Clinton. There is really this horde that is seeking to gather up behind her. And keep in mind, that also pushes a lot of this. There are jobs and careers in the balance here. There are people who have written a lot of checks to the Clintons, to the Clinton Foundation, to the Democratic Party. There are individuals who know that they are lined up to get some very primo government spot, you know, get some very senior government appointee position if Hillary wins. And they're all willing to, in one way or another, work towards a Clinton presidency. And even with that, it's not finished. It's not all done. This thing is not in the bag. And I think that there has been this collective, uh, this collective moment of a sort of deafening silence from the media. I mean, the media is never really silent, right? It's 24-7. But I mean with the, the plan. There was a plan, and they were executing the plan, and they were executing it pretty well. The Clinton campaign, the media, uh, all of their surrogates in and outside of government. They were covered at the DOJ. They were good to go there. Everything was more or less happening the way it could, given that they're all hoisting this horrific, this horrific, corrupt woman onto their shoulders and carrying her across the finish line as she's just dripping scandals and cash that's illicitly obtained all along the way. But they gather up and they push and they do what they can to make it happen for her. That's the situation. That's where we are. We have a recognition that what started, I think, as a sort of crass, or I shouldn't say crass, strike that from the record, opportunistic talking point from Donald Trump that there that the system is rigged, but also that there are these sort of elites in D.C. and that our leadership is so dumb. Our leadership is not so dumb, by the way. That I, that I think has been disproven by what's going on. Our leadership is crafty. Our leadership is self-dealing, is self-interested, is narcissistic, immoral, but not dumb. They're not dumb. They just don't care. There's a huge difference there. The Clintons are not dumb. Nancy Pelosi's dumb. The Clintons are not dumb. 
they just don't care. Meaning that their oath of office and the power entrusted to them and the problems facing the American people, that if in good faith the Clintons wanted to address those problems, they could at least do something worthwhile. They don't because they don't matter. You don't matter. I don't matter. So we see this again, but the idea that there's a rigged system and that there are elites that are disconnected from us, that rule over us and have a separate set of rules to live by, including the law. I don't just mean rules for sort of their conduct day to day. I mean the law. That has been proven to be the case in a way that was not true. In the, this was not true in the last election. This was not a referendum. In 2012 was not a referendum on corrupt governance and the elites in a sort of ruling class way, looking down upon all of us, trying to gather enough of the dumbest, uh, dumbest of us together to go along with what they want. To borrow from, I think it's Solzhenitsyn, you know, we won't make too much noise about it as long as we are safe, as long as we are safe and warm and fed. That approach. This is what the Democrat Party, Democrat Party has become. It is a rigged system with a group of elites at the top. And they try to rabble-rouse among the masses, turn us against each other, make sure that we never have any real accountability, make sure that they get to live by a separate set of rules, and that the rest of us, especially those of us who would point out this disparity and how it goes to the very heart of our republic, how this is deeply damaging to the essential fabric to the foundation of this country to have the most powerful people in the country who are above the law is to destroy what this country was built to be democrats are all still behind it no rending of garments no gnashing of teeth no sadness on their part if they can carry Madame secretary across the finish line on their shoulders they don't care how fetid the process they will do it We'll get into this more, team, but sponsor this half hour, our friends at Yankee Hill Machine. I want to thank Yankee Hill Machine for always being a rock-solid supporter of the Buck Sexton Show. They do fantastic work. Go to YHM.net. You'll see they design, develop, and manufacture top-quality firearms and accessories. These are gun guys. They're from a gun family. They all really support the Second Amendment. They like to go out and shoot themselves. Every part of this process, they take a tremendous amount of pride in. This is all about craftsmanship, and this is about being small business owners here in the U.S. of A. All started in America, made in America. They do it all right here. They had some humble beginnings as a simple job shop up in Florence, Massachusetts, but then they started getting going. They're making really top-class AR-15s and sound suppressors now, and their continued innovations have made them a well-known entity in the AR and sound suppression industry. So... For the complete line of Yankee Hill Machine products, you just go to YHM.net, YHM.net, Yankee Hill Machine, and it's YHM.net. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. The 
the experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and, and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. It is fascinating to me as we look at the possible motivations for the Russian Russian involvement in our election, um, people are saying, oh, well, it's because of Trump being so close. with." I mean, come on. I don't think that Putin has some love for Trump. I mean, I think that Putin is a fascinating psychological study unto himself, from what we understand. Uh, and Trump only likes Putin insofar as they're sort of the, the public caricature of Putin. Trump doesn't really know about Putin. I'm sure if you sat down with him and asked Trump, so what do you think about Putin having critics of the regime assassinated? He'd be like, what do you, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he literally wouldn't know what you're talking about. My guess, but I tend to be right on these things. So why would Russia do this? Why use WikiLeaks as a, uh, as a cutout, as a front to expose the ruling class in this country? And the ruling class really is the Democratic Party. Um, because they also have the media and now, as we see, the government itself on their side. Sure, there are some important, prominent Republicans, but the, the, the thing I always see is Republicans who are very successful and who have the money, they, re- they tend to retreat from public life uh, and just say, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I'm just going to be you know, like hanging out with the family at the, at the ranch or the ski lodge or the beach house or whatever. I'm, you know, this is all <laughs> I'd put this under hashtag goals, by the way. So why would Russia do it? It makes me think of the refrain you get from a lot of countries around the world that have both an antagonism and an inferiority complex towards the United States. Very good example of this some years ago when Columbia University uh, thought, you know, Columbia University, where I'm sure safe spaces do exist because any elite school now has to have safe spaces. But they invited Ahmadinejad uh, or Ahmadinejad depending on how, you know, Persian you want to get. Uh, I don't even know if that's right. So they invited Ahmadinejad to uh, Columbia University, and he came there. And every response to a question about his, I I wasn't there, I just read their, you know, sort of the write-ups of this. Whenever he was asked, well, what about, and the one that really got the gasp at Columbia from everybody just freaking out was when he said there are no gays in Iran, right, which... That was, the, that was a sort of slap in the face that even the progressive left had to realize, oh, this guy's actually, actually a bigot and actually a psycho, like actually a lunatic. He's not just uh, a non-white foreign leader that Americans have been to- you know, taught to hate or something. No, he's, he's actually crazy. But his 
way of responding to every major criticism that was leveled against the Iranian state was, well, what about you in America? What about this thing that you did? What about that time in Chile when you, you know, overthrew this guy? Or what about that time when you work with that bad guy in Argentina? Or what about Iran-Contra? Or what about they, you know, and it's all, and yeah, some of it's deflections from decades ago, or some of it's more recent, you know, your, your bombing of the Iraqi people to overthrow Saddam, your illegal war there. It's always muddy the waters. It can never be a discussion about what another country is doing that's a really bad country or where there's true despotism or true tyranny. It's always a, there's a reflexive response of America does bad things too. One of our great criticisms of Russia, of post-Soviet Russia, is that it is a kleptocracy. It is a government where the people at the top steal from the rest and they keep them in line under the threat of force. And there are two sets of laws, one for the powerful, one for the less powerful. That is not as true in this country as it is in Russia. But the Russians are pointing to what happens here and saying... Maybe you should check out your own house. Maybe you should see how some of the criticisms you level against us play out in your country. Maybe it's a little more genteel and sophisticated corruption, but it is unethical, immoral, and in its own way, a sort of soft tyranny. And this is how they also defend themselves against accusations from us. There's some truth to what they say. Of course, it's exaggerated. WikiLeaks becomes a tool for this exaggerated accusation. And oh, by the way, that accusation also means that they then don't have to come to grips with their own much greater corruption issues. It is a defense mechanism. And it's also a little bit of, uh, what is it, two quoque, you as well, something like that. You too, you also. And that's what the Russians are saying with all this, or the Russian government, I mean. Let's get into why the Clintons do what they do. This is going to be fun. It's going to be dirty. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Really excellent piece uh, I commended to you all on uh, National Review today from uh, the one and only Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, it is it is so good. It's really a, a sort of a, a master class essay in the truth about the Clintons. These people who. Uh, and we have to refer to them in the plural because, remember, it is all a package deal. This this notion that Bill is not all involved in this, too, and that this is not this is complete nonsense. Uh, people say, oh, he's not running. He, he's a part of the package. And, I mean, I like to be the biggest part of the package I can be. I'm just going to help America. Ugh. It's terrible, isn't it? People are always so – I hear so many are are impressed by this individual, and I never – Really get it. I've never heard him say anything that I thought was profound. I know I'm I'm a sort of even a, a Clinton charm skeptic. I, I don't I don't understand this. I've heard women my age tell me that they think that he's still really hot. I'm like, well, to each his own, I suppose, right? But why is that the case? First of all, he's been accused of rape by more than one woman. He's incredibly uh, shady by any definition when it comes to women. He's uh, what is this? 
this sort of the cult that's grown up around him. It's amazing. It's like when you when you actually learn about JFK and uh, the the stories about him. I mean, I all the drugs and the you know, a nineteen year old nineteen year old intern came out and said that she's you know, I know a family show, so I won't get into the details, but stuff happened. I mean, a really flawed and in many ways desperate person, even though he was scion of this great family of the Democratic Party, the Democrats, who started out effectively as drug dealers, right, bootleggers. Um, so that's great. And he got away with all this stuff, and they created this whole notion of Camelot when in reality there were like sex parties, the White House, all kinds of crazy stuff happening there. But that was all co- – we had no independent verification mechanisms at the time. I mean the press used to be so powerful in the sense that how are you going to fact check them? You know, whatever the guy on radio or TV said at night when you're sitting down to dinner was what you knew or whatever you read in the newspaper the next day, that's it. There was no, there was no social media. There was no Google. There was no – none of that stuff. So they were able to create this perception of JFK in this, in this Camelot, picturesque marriage and all this stuff. With Clinton, the story is that somehow he's this great genius that – you know, look, he's, he's, a, he's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a Rhodes Scholar a long time ago. Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas, you know, okay. I'll, one thing I'll say to you, I know a bunch of Rhodes Scholars all think they're much more impressive than they actually are. To, to, to the one, I'm just speaking of the ones that I know. Isn't General Wesley Clark a Rhodes Scholar? Guy's a jerk. Uh, all of them, all the ones that I know, will, they, you know they, and they love to sort of just drop it in there too. With all the subtlety of people that say, well, I went to college in Cambridge. It's like, which one? Was it Harvard? So you have Rhodes Scholars. Okay, great. Who cares? Bill Clinton's supposed to be so brilliant. I don't really understand uh, why people buy into that. He won with less than half the vote first time around, right? It's not like he was some some landslide. and, and it's, it's, it's all a construct is what I'm getting at. And it's such an effective construct that otherwise normal people, normal attractive females within five years of my age, either way, I've heard say, I still think Bill Clinton is sexy. I'm like, what is sexy about this decrepit, old, skirt-chasing, butt-grabbing, sexual-harassing, probable rapist? What is sexy about him? I I need someone to explain this to me. And why is he so brilliant? Because he's sort of a, you know, raconteur who will talk about, you know, I met with, you know, King Faisal, and then I met with this other guy, and we were talking about this, and, you know, global energy and all that. The speeches that I've heard him give are the kind of speeches that impress not very intelligent people as being very intelligent. That seems to be his real wheelhouse. What's his legacy as president? People talk about, well, he was president rather during the tech boom, which obviously sent the stock market soaring and then it crashed. And there was a fair degree of, of economic prosperity. We really got to think that that was because of him. And we could argue this all day long, but it was also propped up in part. It was really when the housing market started to get out of control. And then it wasn't until in the, obviously, the you know, Bush administration at the end of it that what had been put in motion in the 90s uh, with the sort of housing. And this was a bipartisan thing. I'm not trying to pretend it was just Clinton, but... It wasn't a good idea, this sort of ownership society where everybody has to have a house. What if you can't pay for the house? Everybody has to have a house. Okay. That seems to make sense. And not giving somebody credit for – or giving somebody a loan for a house even if they can't pay it back. If they're of a certain ethnic uh, composition, if they're a certain ethnic background, that's racist. But what about the FICO score? Forget FICO. FICO scores are racist. Okay. Good talk. 
So I don't understand why Bill Clinton is thought of as being brilliant. I, I, I haven't seen any evidence of this. What exactly marks him as, as a brilliant man? Well, what's uh, the failed Camp David peace accord? And what do we point to? Ignoring the escalating war al-Qaeda was waging against us when he was commander-in-chief? What, what do we point to? I, I, I need some evidence of this. But it's, I'll say, uh, people that I know who are very smart, very wise, people that uh, surpass my knowledge in a whole bunch of different areas will say, oh, I heard Bill Clinton speak, and there's just this magnetism. Really? It's just so, mag- so magnetic. Everything I hear him say is self-serving, platitudinous, and I feel like I've heard it said a hundred times either by him or somebody else already. It's the power of the propaganda, my friends. Bill Clinton is sexy. Bill Clinton is brilliant. Same thing with Hillary Clinton. She's so, she's so uh, prepared. She's the most, the most qualified. The most qualified. Well, why? Because she's kind of a celebrity. She's kind of a, a celebrity who ran on the coattails of her husband to be a senator, a not very distinguished senator, as a carpetbagger in New York, and then after an unsuccessful presidential campaign was sidelined as sort of a little agreement within the DNC to be Secretary of State until she could run later. I- I'm I'm missing why this is supposed to impress me. I-, I-, I am not impressed by any of this. So that's on that side of things. Now we can get to the why I'm disgusted by them, which is probably more fun to talk about. And it's what Victor Davis Hanson, who I mentioned at the beginning here on National Review, is talking about as well. Uh, their rapacious greed is clearly a prime, uh, a prime mover for them, a, a primary motivator for them. He says here in his piece, VDH, uh, that the Clintons suffer from greed as defined by Aristotle, endless acquisition solely for the benefit of self. Aristotle's a smart guy, knew some stuff. So that is what the Clintons are all about. That is the truth of how they approach day-to-day life. They just want more stuff. They just want to be in a place where they are able to get more stuff because that's what they want, that's what they need, that's who they are. He even says that there's a sort of inferiority complex motivating much of, you know, because they gave up their scruples, they gave up their principles, they abandoned being good people way back in Arkansas with the cattle futures and the Rose Law Firm and the sort of petty scams you would expect. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton is really a glorified version of Blagojevich, you know? I mean, a Senate seat's a blanking valuable thing. You don't just give it away. I mean, him and his wife, that's who they are. They wish they were Chicago machine politicians, but they were playing in the the backwater league. They're down there in Arkansas, not not a national stage. They're running their little scams, their schemes. You know, they remind me of uh, the guy from the spinoff from Breaking Bad. I forget what it's called now. It's not it's Better Call Saul. It really wasn't very good, in my opinion. It was very mediocre. But they called him Slip and Fall Jimmy, you know, because that was his thing. He would do the slip and fall thing, and then he would sue people. You know, he'd make himself fall down and say he slipped. Now, the Clintons were the sort of political equivalent. Yeah, I mean, they had, they had good pedigrees from these schools, but I hate to break it to you. I know people get very excited about this stuff. Getting into you know Yale Law in the early 70s or the late 60s or whenever they went, uh, you had like maybe a one in four shot as an applicant. Now you have about a two in a hundred shot, literally. 
So things have gotten tougher. So don't be quite as impressed by some of this resume stuff that, sorry, baby boomers, get thrown around for that generation. It's a whole different ball game now. Now you got the whole world applying to these schools and the sifting mechanisms and also the diversity stuff and everything else that gets thrown into it has made it much more difficult. So you have these sort of backwater, uh, these backwater politicians that sold that sold their souls a long time ago, but they sold them cheaply. And then through a whole bunch of circumstances that some of you are even more familiar with than me because I was a youngin, he gets elevated to the highest office in the land and acts like much of the time you'd expect somebody who is sort of a, and so did she, you know, a, a, a petty uh, a, a petty B team, you know, farm league or farm team, you know, whatever they call the baseball that's not that important, um, and acts like you would expect them to. No real surprises there. But then, after eight years of the media propping them up and pushing them forward and defending them and circling around them, then the media was all invested and they realized, you know what? They're, they're signed on. Now they've sold their souls. They've signed on to this no matter what. They're all part of the grossness that is the Clinton machine. So the Clintons said, you know what? what we don't want to just be millionaires, which is what they would have been by writing a few books and giving some speeches. Bill Clinton, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton after his presidency, without lifting a finger, really, having other people write the speeches and other people write the books and doing some consulting and sit on some boards, they could have been worth 15 or 20 million bucks in a, you know, in a, in a couple of years. And I mean, guaranteed, by the way, you know, not like, oh, maybe this will work, maybe it doesn't. But as uh, VDH points out, that's not enough. Because they really think of themselves, they think of themselves as being worthy of that Davos class of the sort of billionaires, the glo- the true global elites. And so they needed to be worth not 15 million, not 50, but $150 million. And they set up a multi-billion dollar charity that flies them all over the world, that pays their unbelievable expenses. The charity is a giant slush fund for them, right? How many of us wouldn't take this deal if you had no scruples? You know, you, you raise $2 billion for charity, you give a little money to a couple of programs here and there for global warming and women's rights, but you also get hundreds of millions of dollars to spend on your travel, your staff, your, uh, you know, your perks, pays for your life, your lifestyle. And then any money that comes in on the side from your dealings in this giant foundation, which was also, of course, a huge part of it, that just goes into the bank. So they had to be 100 millionaires living like billionaires. They had already sold out any vestiges of being decent, honorable people. So they figure, why not? All in. As I've said to you, there is a hole in Hillary Clinton's soul. The only way the Clintons can fill this is just with more cash and more power. Too late to turn around now. What, at this point, what difference would it make if you want to borrow from Hillary? We're one week away, one week away from possibly making this woman the most powerful person on the planet. Despite everything I've told you in the last hour, and I don't even think anybody's going to argue it's not true. I don't even think Hillary defenders could really argue it's not true. What? She's not, she's not rapaciously greedy? That's not a prime motivator for her. They're a disgrace. An out and out disgrace. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. A few more points, team, from this uh, excellent piece by Victor Davis Hanson on NationalReview.com today. Uh, that power and pride were the other catalyst for Clinton criminality. This is what he writes. I don't think progressive politics mattered much to the Clintons, at least compared with what drives the more sincere Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Hillary, like Bill, has no real political beliefs, though she doesn't hesitate to pursue a mostly opportunistic political agenda. By temperament and background, the Clintons are leftists and will follow a leftist vision, sort of, but one predicated on doing so within constraints of obtaining and keeping power. He goes on, for the Clintons... Power is the narcotic of being sought out, of being surrounded by retainers, of bringing enemies to heel and enticing sycophants with benefits. Liberalism and progressivism are mere social and cultural furniture, the correct politics of their background that one mouths and exploits to obtain and maintain political clout and to get really, really rich without guilt or apology. End quote. Uh, That, yes, 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 yes. I sign. I sign on. I co-sign. I, I second it. Whatever I can do. That is the Clintons in a nutshell. It's all, it's all a part of the Clinton show. It's all an effort to enrich them, make them more powerful. And the script, of course, in, in America, in contemporary America, if you, if you want to be super rich and never have to apologize, be a progressive who makes everybody else pay the bills. You know, be a progressive who wants to institute policies that will only affect disfavored constituencies. You know, attack the religious, attack small businesses, attack those who want to live as individuals in society and just want their rights respected and want the government to leave them alone and give out goodies like Halloween candy to everybody else. Goodies that you don't pay for and that you at least pretend to extract from the disfavored groups when in reality the progressives extract them from everyone. They just have ways of hiding it. This is the essence of Obamacare. Obamacare is Halloween candy for a few that are supposed to be paid for by a few others, but are really, in the end, paid for by all of us. It makes it worse for all of us, too. It's like the bad Halloween candy that's hard when you bite into it, and and you feel like it's stale and it's maybe a few years old. And maybe the mean old lady down the street gave it to you because she doesn't actually like kids, you know? It's that Halloween candy. I did not do any. I did not do any Halloween festivities last night. I missed out on all that. Uh, we've got some guests joining to talk a bit about the latest on the scandals with uh, well, the various scandals surrounding all things Clinton. We'll get into some national security in hour three. Uh, I've got a lot of show coming your way, team. So stay with me. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three on those phone lines. Light them up. Hour two coming up. The Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We're joined by Ed Klein. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is Guilty as Sin Uncovering New Evidence of Corruption and How Hillary Clinton and the Democrats Derailed the FBI Investigation. Ed, I hear you've got some new stuff for us. Thanks for calling in. Hey, Buck, how you been? 
Good, good. So uh, let's start first, if we could, with the uh, earlier piece you had. I think this is yesterday, because uh, this one is, is of particular interest to me, that there are resignation letters that have piled up from disaffected FBI agents. What can you tell us about this? Because I had been thinking for a while that I was uh, th- that it was amazing that there were none of these or none of these being reported. Well, they weren't be re- being reported. They were there was speculation before I ran this piece, but there was no actual reporting. This is really reporting <clears throat> this uh, pile of resignation letters. I don't know how many are there have not been signed yet by the director of the FBI because he doesn't want to have to face the fact that there is a, I would call it a near mutiny among some of the men and women who participated in the email investigation of Hillary Clinton. Uh, There's a lot of dissension there in the FBI. A lot of people think that the director of the FBI... James Comey dropped the ball last July when he failed to recommend an indictment of Hillary. They think they, that he brought disgrace upon the FBI. And uh, Comey has been very depressed by all this. People, Some people have stopped talking to him. Even in the hallways, when he says hello, they don't respond. His own wife has been telling him, Jim, you got to do something about this. So I think when he had the opportunity uh, to uh, respond to the news that there were these emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop that contained communications between Hillary Clinton and and her closest advisor, Huma Abedin, he jumped at the chance. And I, I think that explains in large part why he did what he did when he did it. Is your sense from your sources that the FBI agents were were angry at the decision that he made or angry that he came ahead of the DOJ and sort of usurped what's usually a prosecutorial prerogative? No, they, were, but- they were angry at the decision not to recommend an indictment. So there are there are people within the FBI with close uh, ties to the actual investigation who know what's going on. And they felt like there should have been charges brought. It's not even just that the FBI overstepped. Precisely. Now, the FBI did overstep in part because Loretta Lynch, who was a very politicized attorney general, to put it mildly, um, said that she would recuse herself from this decision and accept anything the FBI, if you recall, uh, recommended. Uh, Comey, I think went well beyond what he should have done at that time. It was not his job or uh, the the job of any prosecutor to act as, I'm sorry, no FBI agent to act as a prosecutor. And that's what he did. But that's not what caused the consternation inside the FBI. It was a failure to make Mrs. Clinton essentially pay for her sins. Now, what could be different? And this is a question that, I, that I've been wrestling with the last few days. The, the, there already was classified, and they said that with absent intent, they're not going to bring any charges against Hillary. What is, what is possible, or have you heard from any sources about what they believe or know to be in this new 
tranche of emails that could cause a real problem? Or is the only problem just the investigation still open and it looks bad? Well, I, I don't I can't really answer your question authoritatively other than to say that my sources, like many sources have, who have spoken to other journalists, have said that Comey wouldn't have done this unless he thought there was <clears throat> a real cause, meaning a real possibility that within these 650,000 emails, there'd be emails in, that contain classified information that had absolutely no place being on the unsecure laptop of no less a personage than this pervert Anthony Weiner. So that in itself is a federal crime. Now uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit to your other piece, also in the Daily Mail, an exclusive they have there. I'm going to read the title, and then, uh, Ed, I'm going to let you have the floor. How Hillary Clinton massaged, embarrassed Huma Abbott in shoulders at an intimate Chappaqua get-together, and jealous Chelsea treats Huma with undisguised contempt when her mother isn't around. What the heck is going on here, sir? Well, you know, I don't want to make so much of this that it sounds as though, and I'm going to use these words on radio. They're not bad words. They're words that are in the dictionary. There, there are... This is not a charge that there's a lesbian relationship between Hillary and Huma Abedin. That's not what I'm saying. <clears throat> what I'm saying is that Huma Abedin has become so essential to Hillary's everyday functioning that she is the closest person to Hillary, including Bill and Chelsea, that everything goes through Huma, including the emails Huma reads the emails often before Hillary reads her own emails. People don't see Hillary without Huma's kind of acting like a gatekeeper. Huma has been, until recently, no further than three feet away from Hillary. And these two act like girlfriends, if you will, like teenage girlfriends, you know, really um, inseparable and dependent on each other. And and Chelsea is has some sibling rivalry, I would call it, with whom Abedin. Interesting, also that in this piece you say that uh, Hillary called uh, FBI Director James Comey at one point a very mean name and said that he had been quote after her for years. Yeah. So the the Clintons didn't have this uh, d- didn't have this idea in their heads, I suppose, before all this that Comey was one of their guys. Is that fair to say? Well, who knows with Hillary? She's always um, pointing an accusing finger at anyone who criticizes her and blaming them and saying, oh, they've always been against me. There's a paranoid streak in Hillary, as you well know. As far as I know, I don't think James Comey has been after Hillary Clinton until this email thing rose up. And that is entirely Hillary's fault and not James Comey's fault. And also, uh, there's some real animosity that seems to have come out about how Hillary and uh, maybe Huma as well feel or felt about Bernie Sanders <laughs> across the board. Well, yeah, I mean, there was this feeling that this guy had absolutely no right to be running for president, that he was, you know, a far left wing kook. Uh, they didn't make any bones about the fact that they thought he was you know, from uh, a fringe group of uh, Democrats rather than the establishment where Hillary comes from. 
and they they had kind of contempt for the guy. Little did they know that he was going to win what is it twenty two primaries. I mean, which is quite amazing when you stop to think about it. Bernie Sanders, who's never run for national office in his life, who's a socialist coming from a tiny little state, um, gives Hillary Clinton a real run for her money, which shows how weak a candidate Hillary really is. If I can circle back to the FBI side of this for a second, where now that it seems to have come to light that there's and there are a number of Wall Street Journal pieces over the weekend on this, that there really was turmoil inside of the FBI and also some very uh, sketchy moves from the DOJ to not to squash the investigation, but to make it clear that, you know, go easy on this and don't really, you know, give it the slow roll, Potomac two-step, let's not get too crazy here. Mm. Now that that stuff has come out, where do you see the investigation into Hillary's server and with all of her aides uh, using these different, do you see it going anywhere? Well, Buck, I'm going to answer that question, and then unfortunately I've got to go because I have another radio sure. show on on the uh, offing. But I think at this point... Both the DOJ, meaning the Justice Department, and the White House have no um, choice but to say, look, we can't interfere with the course of justice. Because if they do, it will look like they're trying to uh, bend the justice uh, toward Hillary's getting to be president. So as we've seen now, the president has sent his uh, spokesperson out to say, that the president thinks that uh, Mr. Comey is a man of integrity. The uh, attorney general who has been in Hillary's pocket is now saying, okay, we'll cooperate with the FBI. So I think this is going to go forward without a lot of interference, because I think if there is interference, I think we, you know, this FBI director could easily say, I'm resigning, I'm quitting and cause a huge political thunderstorm and um, embarrassment to this administration. Ed Klein is the author of Guilty as Sin. Check it out now. It's available in bookstores and on Amazon. Ed, thanks for calling in. It's great to be with you, Buck. Thanks a lot. All right, team. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So uh, I guess we're at a point where we just are supposed to not care that much about new revelations and things that are coming up here. Um, We've got Podesta. Well, you know what? I'm going to put a hold on this. We'll take a call, and then I'll get into this. Podesta. Oh, God. Andrew in Nebraska, what's up? Shields, hi, Buck. How you doing? Shields, hi. I'm all right. How are you? You there? Yes, sir. We're all we're all waiting for you. What's up? Uh, well, I have a theory on the Hillary Clinton email thing. Sure. With the election being next week, there's a chance, and there's always a chance that Trump wins. Well, being aware of that, why wouldn't they reopen the investigation? If Trump wins, she's indicted and then given a presidential pardon to guarantee that nothing happens to her. I'm sorry. Give me that theory again. If Trump wins, 
if Trump wins, yeah. the current administration between now and January yes. when he'd be inaugurated, they go ahead and file the indictment and charge her, and then Obama gives her the pardon. Yes, that can happen. That's All all of that could happen, yeah. That's just my theory, and I, that's what I think is going to happen. Yeah, if Trump if, if Trump wins, wins, there's nothing stopping Obama from pardoning Hillary for all for all of this. Power of the pardon yeah. is an awesome in the sense of you know grandiose, huge, powerful. Uh, it is an it is a, an awesome thing. Uh, it is it is absolute, really. I mean, you can par- and and the president can pardon himself. The president can pardon anybody. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is true. E- even if Hillary, those who think that Hillary, Hillary's never going to jail, everybody, uh, that that's just put that out of your. But this whole lock her up thing, that is never going to happen. Period. Uh, maybe you know, maybe if she wins, could she be impeached? I don't know. I think it's highly, highly unlikely. But could she be removed from office? Even more unlikely. Uh, but you're never going to jail. That's never going to happen because either Obama or Hillary is pardoning Hillary. I mean, that, this is not happening. So uh, you have a situation where either Hillary becomes a president or the current president. uh, And I don't think I think I could already see the script that Obama would sort of use to justify the pardon. He'd say, you know, Hillary was made mistakes, secretary of state acting in good faith. You know, she's getting older or something. You know, it's whatever. It doesn't matter. He'll say something and then he pardons her. Look, they pardon Mark Rich who was a fugitive who never faced the justice system, whose wife made big, don- made big checks, uh, wrote big checks to the, to the Democrat Party, the DNC. And even Eric Holder felt gross about that because he was involved in that. And he says he felt gross about it afterwards. Who knows if that's true? But they admit that that was really slimy and disgusting. So, yeah, could, could, a, could an Obama administration save a failed Hillary bid for the pre- or save save Hillary after a failed bid for the presidency by pardoning her? They certainly could, and I think he would. So I, I think your theory is interesting. Uh, first, she would have to lose, which the Vegas odds yeah. makers and such are saying is unlikely, and then we'd have to see if the Obama administration would be willing to go that extra step and uh, and give her, you know, make it happen, give her the pardon. Yeah. Are you there? All right, Andrew. Thank you for calling in from Nebraska, man. Good to talk to you. So, so let's get into some other things here, shall we? Uh, the Clinton, I'm sorry, Podesta. That's what I mentioned before we had the for the the board light up there. Podesta told the Clinton team to dump emails after the use of a private server emerges from New York Post. Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman directed her former chief of staff to quote dump all those emails. The same day, a bombshell news report revealed Clinton's use of a private email server while U.S. Secretary of State, according to WikiLeaks, on Tuesday. John Podesta sent the message to Cheryl Mills the evening of March 2nd, 2015, hours after the New York Times reported that Clinton might have violated federal records requirements by using the server, according to the latest batch of Podesta's hacked emails. Not to sound like Lanny, but we're going to have to dump all those emails, so better to do so sooner than later, Podesta told Mills. Mills responded, thank you, just got your new nickname. Uh, okay. So how is this not a cover-up? I'm going to need some help here, everyone. New York Times reports that there's this Hillary email server. It's sort of, you know, it's rogue. Uh, you know, it's separate from official state channels. This is going to be a problem. And senior consigliere to the Clinton crime family, John Podesta... He comes out and he says, better dump all those emails. 
What is that? What does that mean other than delete all those emails so that people can't get them? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? And if that's what he was saying, I'm going to need someone to explain to me how that is not an effort to cover all of this up. You know, these are the this is sort of the incongruence that the Clinton situation that they've never been able to explain this. If there's nothing to hide and they were about yoga routines, the emails were about yoga routines and a wedding schedule and it was all in the up and up and there was nothing. Remember at the very beginning, Hillary said what she did was allowed at the time. It was allowed. She's gone a long way from it was allowed. But remember that she uh, she did that and then now here we are with her saying it was a mistake and she wouldn't do it again and all this other stuff. But, okay, how is it that there's no problem there's nothing to see. There's no issue at hand. And yet they have people like John Podesta saying, oh, gosh, we better dump all those emails. We better make this we better make this thing go away. I, I, you know, it, it can't be both. I mean, this is just this is, I think, a very important thing to keep in mind. Here. It cannot be both. It can't be that there was panic within the Clinton camp to make sure that this information never reached the light of day, was never publicized, and there was nothing to see. Also interesting, by the way, according to the Post here, Huma Abedin learned the FBI was looking at her emails from reading the papers. This is what it says. Uh, former lawyer in the Obama White House uh, and former communications director for Clinton Senate office said Abedin first learned the FBI was looking into emails on her laptop Friday after James Comey sent a letter to Congress notifying lawmakers that new evidence had emerged in the email investigation. So Huma here apparently had no idea. By the way, she also swore, you know, she said to the FBI that she turned over all materials and now she's just going to say, well, she didn't know. And this again falls into this double standard thing with, well, You know, do you get to just say you didn't know when you don't give the FBI everything you said you gave them? That wouldn't even work with the IRS, right? The old I didn't know routine. Now it's it's for a national security investigation involving the FBI. I I didn't know. That's that's good enough. Well, I guess if you're if you're a Huma, it's good enough. Um, This is just how many now? I think it's five investigations, concurrent investigations by the FBI into various Clinton-linked players, that's a lot of suspicion. That's a lot of smoke. But they've got seven days to try to convince the American people there's no fire, or at least to prevent us from seeing the fire. Man, it's going to get ugly in these last few days. Ugly. Be interesting, though. We've got more coming. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We're joined now by Ron Hosko. He was the assistant director at the FBI between 2012 and 2014. He was heading the uh, criminal investigative division. He's now the president at the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Uh, Ron, thank you very much for calling in. Sure. Good to be with you. Uh, so, Ron, what do you what do you think first about the the most recent uh, Comey announcement? And we've got a lot to talk about here. But let's start with that. 
uh, was was he out of line or was he doing exactly what he should have done? Buck, I think that the director found himself on a uh, this path that put him in that position today um, or on Friday and has uh, led to all this uh, uh, backlash and whipsawing that we've seen in the um, in the media and in the uh, in the press um, and that that path that he was on uh, that he had help getting onto that path and that help came in the form of the Attorney General of the United States when she foolishly uh, took the the tarmac meeting with Bill Clinton and I think that the, the director Comey's intent uh, in coming out in July, um, there's a couple of uh, pieces to this, but I think his intent was to put to rest the notion that there was a politiza- politization of the process and that uh, he wanted to shed some light on the, the scope of the FBI investigation um, to kind of defeat that, that narrative that had been fed by the attorney general's meeting. So in, in, in effect, he, he took a grenade with Loretta Lynch's and DOJ's name on it. Um, the, those are decisions that are typically the province of DOJ. Uh, that is the decision on whether we should seek an indictment or not. The FBI would uh, investigate and consult. But I think the director took her grenade. They should, they should have been thanking him at the time. He then went on you know, with the uh, testimony on the Hill and committed to uh, transparency, and it kind of put him on this path that he, um, once again, popped up on, on Friday. Uh, do you, what's your response to the reports that there is a, a quasi-mutiny within the FBI or that there have, there's been a lot of consternation and, and infighting over some of these decisions? Is that the press just sort of uh, imputing things that, that aren't necessarily there, or have you heard similar that there have been similar uh, fights going on inside the Bureau? No, I, I think um, the people reporting that um, ought to double back on their sources. Um, I have good friends that are still working in the building. Um, I will tell you that uh, there is, internally, there's been, uh, I think, very candid uh, exchanges and differences of opinion on um, how to proceed, what to say, what what's not say. Um and, and that that's actually healthy, and, and and typically that can be healthy between investigator, FBI, and prosecutor, you know, DOJ or U.S. Attorney's Office. That that can often make for a better, more sound case and better decision making. But uh, I'm told by multiple friends who are still working in that building, there is nothing uh, approaching a mutiny. There is no disrespect when the director. You know, those re- recent reports, when the director walks by, people turn their backs. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. I think that the, um, most of the agents have great respect for the director um, and, and by and large, um, are, agree with and support what he is saying and doing. But there's an internal frustration, too, um, and that is this. You know, the FBI is an organization, um, when I was there, there were probably 55,000 approximately cases in my portfolio. Uh, I had the criminal division. That's a lot of cases. Um, terrorism, they, you know, hundreds, hundreds of cases. Counter te- counterintelligence, cyber, the same. And so employees are not getting briefed routinely on, on each other's cases or big cases. They're reading it in the media, too. 
Um, and there's a reason for that. You know, there, you, you exchange information uh, on a kind of a need-to-know basis. You know this. Um, it's, it's not free flow, and everybody has free access to these cases. And so I think there's, there is a bit of frustration internally because they don't know, other than what they hear in the media, by and large, how the thing went down. And so even there, the director has tried to communicate with his workforce and tell them about the, uh, you know, a bit more about the decision-making um, and how they got to the endpoint um, to try to keep them informed. And obviously some of that leaks out. And, but there is you know, a fair amount of negativity, certainly of, in the retired ranks like me, um, and that negativity, I think, is uh, very informed by the lack of information, not not affirmatively knowing what steps were taken, how serious it was. And I'll tell you, the hey, Ron, can I ask you a question? In your time at the FBI, was there ever an in- incident where the FBI director came out and gave a press conference and said that he did not think charges were merited in this way? I, I'm just wondering, is that something that had, ha- had happened previously? I've I've never no. seen it, but I didn't work at the FBI. I, I, I would tell you um, I had a 30-year career, and, and I don't ever recall that happening. That, I think, is extraordinary. And frankly, that is a big piece of the negativity coming from the retired folks um, that, that uh, the director made statements that went way beyond what any uh, senior executive would have done in the past or typically did. And I think, as he has said, he chalks that up to the the need because of the intense interest and who we're talking about and that we're in this political season that he owed us greater transparency. But uh, why couldn't Loretta Lynch be the one to make that announcement? Why why not just give his recommendations and allow it to be Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, who says that we're not proceeding with charges? Well, you're making their case, the retired guy's case. And I think it goes back to her meeting with Bill Clinton, that, that she, in effect, discredited the process and gave voice to those who were saying it's political. And at that time, the director decided somebody has to step up and say this was not a political process. And I think, in part, he, his calculus was, um, you know, he does have this reputation as, you know, the Boy Scout, the straight shooter. And I think he thought he could... Um, leverage that reputation, which I think in, in my dealings with him is deserved, um, in a way that would calm the concerns, which obviously were not um, calmed, and, and then led to these calls for, hey, you as the director went too far. Uh, those, I think, uh, in ways are very fair criticisms because it was unprecedented. Uh, you know, many things about this case are. Yeah, well, what's your assessment of what we know publicly, what the Bureau has said about the about the investigation, about what they found? Uh, you obviously, you were FBI. I assume you, you, had, you had to have a clearance. I had a TS clearance at one point. Sure. Uh, yeah. It would not have been uh, – I would not have put money on me continuing to have a career or even necessarily freedom if I had over 100 classified emails on a personal computer that I had set up or personal server that I had set up. What do you say to people who feel like that just is so obviously a two-tiered justice system? Um, I, I understand those concerns, those sentiments. Um, like you, I had TS, um, and uh, no one in my organization w- could have thought that diverting their work emails to a, a private server sitting at their house was something that would be a good idea right. or that would survive <laughs> yeah. for a couple of minutes. And I think... Part of the frustration is among those of us who've been in the intelligence community, those in, in the military, 
who understand the risk and the value of uh, this uh, sensitive information, how you store it, and the frustration that there doesn't appear to be any sanction for someone who we all know left you know, government service, is fighting to get back in, but left government service several years ago. So there is that frustration, like, hey, how do you punish somebody like this with something more than I made a mistake? I, you know, it's almost a slap in the face to hear her say that because of what, what was expected of you, what's expected of me, and tens of thousands of others who, who are guarding that information so jealously today. What about the, the uh, conferral of immunity to people that were very involved, in, I mean, that were subjects of the investigation, if not targets of the investigation, yep. and the way that it was handled, the inclusion of Cheryl Mills, both as lawyer and as interviewee in the room with Hillary Clinton? You did this for a very long time, as you said. Yep. That strikes a lot of other people I know, including former U.S. Uh, assistant U.S. attorneys, as highly unusual and preferential. Uh, would you say that that's a fair that's a fair characterization of those things? Well, let me let me try to dispel a couple things uh, that I've been um, told. Uh, one, you know, there's there's this kind of notion that I think is being circulated in the media that, that that immunity deals were given out like candy. First, there were a couple of IT guys who got uh, immunity deals, and my understanding was the the intent was to get. Uh, some peripheral players under the tent in in the FBI's camp with the facts, with the truth, early on. And they believed that early on that these folks were going to have no culpability um, and that they, they wanted to get them in early so that they might drive the investigation forward in the right directions. And and that was, you know, a, a, a calculus that, that you know, seasoned investigators made. In In hindsight, I'm told, that even though someone may have been involved with backing up and later destroying, um, that there was no evidence that that destruction was anything but routine um, on their part. So not part of a criminal conspiracy. These were very peripheral players who ultimately they saw as couldn't be charged and shouldn't be charged. So the Bureau's view, I think, would be they traded away nothing in giving that early, those early deals to, to those two. And then with respect to Mills and Samuelson, uh, who possessed these computers that were being used to, to look over everything uh, in a pretty haphazard way, it seems, but they were given very narrow immunity that is production immunity. So if I turn over the, the laptop with classified contents and I don't myself have a lawful reason to possess them, I don't want to be prosecuted for handing you this laptop. You can't charge me for handing you the laptop that you're asking for. So it was very narrow with respect to those two. Didn't prohibit other, uh, you know, other uh, uh, challenges and potentially prosecution for other things. Just limited to those two. So I think the Bureau's view is they traded away very little to get to the core information and know what they you know, had to know. Um, but now, can so, I ask you, Ron, usually in these kinds of investigations, pressure is an essential component of getting to the truth, right? This is yep, people yep. see just from watching TV. They know this. You get the guys or the girls in the room and you say, look, whoever rolls first, they're going to get the deal or whoever yep. speaks. We're going to look upon that favorably. It seems from everything we know that in this instance, at every step of the way, it was don't worry, nothing bad will happen to you. Please give us this stuff. It feels different from other investigations. Is that again? You, you feel you feel, or I'm getting from you that you don't think that's a fair characterization? 
But I mean, well, I would have I, to also I, ask you if it's an unfair characterization. How many times did you come across people when there was any IT component of an investigation that they used BleachBit, not just to delete emails, but to overwrite and make them really, really hard to get when they didn't have something to hide? I mean, you were an right, investigator right. for decades. That must, that must raise your eyebrows. Oh, sure. Sure it does. I mean, there, there's all kinds of pieces of this that raise my eyebrows and certainly pieces that raise my ire. You know, the notion um, that, that this group of people and, and the, the, to me, the infection spreads throughout everybody who knew at the Department of State, those who were in charge of, uh, of security, those who were, who were in charge of IT, uh, setting up and, and, uh, and turning their head to any piece of this, um, their, their inspector general's office, their security division. I, I think it is a, and I think the director mentioned this, it, you know, I view it as systemic and outrageous failure. I haven't heard of any um, action being taken on any of that. And frankly, I think the, the failure goes into the White House, because as you and I know, if we were to, sp- to send anything that looked like a suspicious email to the president of the United States, there are going to be firewalls and filters that, that quarantine that communication, Right. So can, can anybody tell me that this Secretary of State wasn't communicating with her boss on matters of importance to the United States and using these same devices? So how is it that her suspicious-looking email could have gotten to him? I frankly don't think he's been honest with the nation when he talked on 60 Minutes and said, I found out when you found out. I think there's a lot more to that story, and I think the media has failed to, 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 to drill into that and get the truth. Because how else would they be communicating? An occasional phone call? Yeah, no, I think the uh, so, president. I think the president lied on this. But Ron, we're going to have to revisit this. We really appreciate you coming on. We'd love to have you back and, and go into some of this a little deeper, especially as we find out more and as we find out who the next commander in chief is. Uh, Ron Hosko was assistant director of the FBI, and he is now president at the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Ron, thank you very much, man. I appreciate you calling in today. Sure thing. My pleasure. Uh, team, we're going into break. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. I'm very interested. I wish I could have kept talking to uh, former assistant FBI director Hosko there. We ran into a break, though, and he had to go. Uh, we'll have him back because th- I'm, not, I'm not done with that conversation. I, told, I'm, I believe him when – I mean, look, I'm sure he's telling me what he believes across the board. I don't mean that. But I think he's right on the point. I don't buy these FBI resignations and all that stuff. Look, uh, we, had, uh, we had Ed Klein on before. He says he's got sources saying one thing. You always got to remember, very few people, even inside the FBI, really know what's going on with this part of the FBI. I can tell you that from being in the CIA. People would say, Buck, well, like, what about, what was it like in the, in the China office? And I'd be like, I have no idea. I, 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 didn't, I knew nothing about the CIA China office. Like, literally, you know as much as I do nothing, okay? And that's true of a lot of offices there. Uh, I knew about my part of the world and my issues, and that was it. And... You know, the whispers in the hallways about what was going on on our seventh floor there were sometimes less accurate than what we were reading in the Washington Post. So I don't buy that all these FBI agents, I need more proof of this, that they're resigning and they're up in arms and everything else. I think people like their paychecks. They like working for Uncle Sam, and that's that. We've got more coming. 
The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to our three. It's time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. We're joined now by Hassan Hassan. He is a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, also co-author of Inside ISIS. Uh, thank you very much for calling in, Hassan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, so talk to me a bit about your piece here in the New York Times, The Islamic State After Mosul. We know that there's this major offensive going on right now. It looks like it's just a matter of time before ISIS loses its grip on this major city. We've been covering it here on the show. What happens after ISIS loses Mosul? Well, I mean, ISIS has been talking for uh, about five months about what they're going to do after Mosul, after they lose uh, the territory. Uh, well, you know that, you know, uh, Mosul is very important for ISIS. It's the uh, city where Abu Bakr Baghdadi, uh, you know, came out and, uh, and announced the caliphate from a mosque, a very iconic uh, 12th century mosque there. So it's a very important area, uh, you know, a stronghold for for the group. Uh, but they say even if they lose uh, their territory in Mosul and elsewhere, they still have a plan. They can retreat into the desert. They have a plan called Inhiyaz, which is a temporary retreat. So the Inhiyaz and, means that they're going to pull back. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, correct. I mean, it's it's, it's a complicated. They've been talking about this for for a while. And it's basically um, they they say we we've we've seen this movie before, uh, you know the Americans Amer- Americans are going to fight us, and uh, if they succeed in driving us out of the major cities, the urban centers, we can retreat into the desert areas in uh, near Mosul, west of Mosul, all the way to Anbar. This is our area. This is the area we know very well. And we did it before in 2007. And if we uh, were driven out of uh, uh, the urban centers, that's not the, that's not the end of the story. It's uh, just the beginning of a new cycle. It's the beginning of a new campaign uh, by ISIS to go after the people that fought, uh, people who fought them, whether they're Iraqis or fellow Sunnis or, and so on and so forth. And they say it's going to be a temporary retreat. It's not going to last for forever. And this is not uh, this is not the defeat. Uh, they they're going to go back. And so they'll some some of them will go back into Syria. My understanding is they've actually already been sending like the families of many of these ISIS fighters have been sent back to Raqqa, right? So their families are right. away. That means the fighters that are still in Mosul and they the estimates are what three to five thousand something like that inside of of the city and in the surrounding areas. Correct. They will fight it out till the end, but eventually, with a hundred thousand security forces of all different kinds surrounding the city, they're they're going to lose. 
Uh, but that doesn't mean that they go away as a threat uh, on the Iraqi side of the border. Never mind the Syrian side, which I want to ask you about in a second. They'll just go into counterinsurgency mode, which many of these individuals have either learned from, uh, I would assume, the, the stories of or perhaps even firsthand experience of, in, in, or not counterinsurgency, insurgency mode uh, against U.S. forces. I mean, some of them are probably veterans of, you know, of car bombings in Mosul from years ago. Absolutely. I mean, ISIS, since its existence in 2014, it has been mostly an insurgent organization. It wasn't uh, a caliphate until 2014. So uh, the organization, uh, in, in the sense that it's a caliphate, it's a, it's a, governing, uh, it's a governing body, or a uh, or or an idea that uh, that wants to establish the caliphate and so on and so forth. This is only this has been here for two years. What they know best is insurgency. So once they go back to the insurgency mode, uh, they hope that they're going to survive uh, in the same way that they survived before. So you know the trouble now is what we hear in media, and what we're trying to highlight here is that. Uh, this is not, you know, you're, we're following Mosul, and it's going to be a great story if Mosul is retaken from ISIS. It's going to be uh, an opportunity to rebuild uh, Mosul and uh, provide an alternative for the organization. But I think we're kidding ourselves because the, or, the Iraq is not ready to fill the void. It's not even willing to fill the void. Uh, the, the government in Baghdad, they're not, they're not doing enough. They haven't done enough. Uh, before uh, and during the campaign in Mosul to make sure that the, once ISIS is driven out of Mosul, uh, there are people, there are forces, there are local forces who are willing and able to fill the void. That's the key word here. Because if you don't do that, uh, Mosul and northern Iraq and northern Syria are going to turn into uh, sites for competing and conflicting agendas, uh, different forces, different ethnicities and different sects want to try to uh, take control of these areas and use them as uh, spheres uh, of influence. And ISIS is going to exploit that because what we know uh, about ISIS is that it's very good at uh, political tradecraft than military tactics. So they're going to exploit the situation. They're going to create more divisions. And the divisions, divisions uh, in fact, are already taking place. There are more uh, Iraq today is more fractured than ever before. What's happening on the Syrian side of the border? Mosul is getting so much attention right now because of its importance. It's a large city. It's been held by, for, by ISIS for over two years. Uh, on the Syrian side of the equation, though, we know that the, there were Kurdish militias that were taking some territory from ISIS. There's the Jabhat al-Nusra al-Qaeda franchise still active there. There's all this fighting going on in and around Aleppo. What is what is sort of the, the, the status right now of, of the civil war going on in Syria and ISIS's role in that? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is another mess, and this also adds to uh, the ability of ISIS, the potential uh, of ISIS to go back and operate. Because before, it had Iraq. Now it has Iraq and Syria, both uh, conflict areas. Both uh, have a deep vacuum that's not going to be filled anytime soon. And you have all these forces, the, the Kurds and the Arab forces, the Sunni forces opposed to Bashar al-Assad and the Kurds, also a third force in the Syrian uh, in the Syrian insurgency in the sense that they're not uh, with Bashar al-Assad or with the opposition. And they're fighting it out also in the north. And you have Turkey as well. Have, uh, it has problems with the rise of the PKK uh, or PKK-affiliated groups in both Iraq and Syria. 
this is a major uh, problem for uh, a NATO ally uh, that wants to make sure that if you're uh, getting rid of ISIS, that the PKK, which is, a, which is designated as a terrorist organization by both the U.S. and Turkey, uh, not to take uh, over uh, in the areas that ISIS is expelled from. Uh, so it's uh, these. I mean, it's it's really important to look into Iraq and Syria as one uh, theater rather than as two different uh, theaters. And people in the region, people in Iraq, in Syria, and in the region see Iraq and Syria as uh, interconnected and linked more than the Americans do. Now, Bashar al-Assad, in a piece here in in the New York Times today, I was just reading from your editorial from uh, from last week about the Islamic State after Mosul. Peace in the New York Times is that Assad is unrepentant and expects to rule Syria until 2021. That's probably a pretty accurate prediction. When you say Hassan, it looks like he's not going anywhere. I think he has a point, yes. He, uh, I think the Syrian rebels, the regional backers of the Syrian opposition... Uh, don't have high hopes that Bashar Assad is going away anytime soon. Uh, I think that's a, a fact they accept. Uh, that doesn't mean the conflict is ending, because there are other options. People try to uh, cling to their areas of control, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a reality. Do you think that the, the civil war in Syria is going to sort of churn on at different levels of intensity for for just many years to come, is it is it analogous to what happened in on a much bigger scale in terms of the populations, the size of the country, and everything? But what the civil war in Lebanon raged on from 1975 to 1990, roughly 15 years, is Syria just going to be in a constant state of factional fighting for the years to come, or do you, do you see this reaching some form of of ceasefire and stalemate within the next you know year or two? Yeah, I mean the. Uh, just like I said, I think it's going to be only intensifying. In fact, it's going to get worse because you have new conflicts emerging uh, in Syria in some areas. You have some areas are becoming more um, uh, quiet, calm than before, uh, like in western Syria, in southern Syria. But in the rest of Syria, I think that the situation is going to get worse. Uh, you have uh, areas that are being retaken from ISIS. You don't know what's going to happen there. There are deep and growing um, tension between the, the Kurds and the, the Arab populations in the north because the Kurds want to control these areas and they, are, they want to dominate. So you have all these kind of small games happening inside Syria, but also the great games outside. Uh, Turkey uh, has, uh, is focusing on the Kurds. Uh, Russia wants to... Uh, disseminate the opposition uh, and, and the United States standing by is not doing enough to make sure that uh, there is an alignment uh, alignment in, in terms of international approach to the Syrian, Syrian conflict. So some people actually in Syria see that the fact that the grand, the, the great powers are becoming more influential inside Syria, um, these include Russia and Turkey, uh, less uh, the United States, but certainly the United States when it comes to the fight against ISIS in eastern Syria, that this is actually a good sign because these are the great powers can agree on a grand, uh, uh, you know, a plan uh, to resolve the Syrian conflict. But I, I see something else is happening, which is these uh, small-scale, low-intensity conflicts that are taking place and growing in some parts of Syria. 
And this, these are direct results of the campaign against ISIS because uh, you, uh, you know, uh, the international community is, is allowing uh, certain forces to gain from the fight against ISIS uh, to achieve their own cynical agendas. Hassan Hassan is the uh, co-author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. It's a fantastic book. It's uh, Michael Weiss and Hassan Hassan. Also, he is a fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Hassan, great to have you on. As always, really appreciate your time today. Thank you, sir. Uh, team, we'll be back after the break. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. I wasn't sure if today I would talk at all about Halloween costumes and people who are upset about supposedly racist Halloween costumes. Um, And I just feel like I want a little change of pace here. And you got Hillary Duff, who is among the most sort of saccharine. Look, I don't even know much about her. She just she seems like a classic whatever kind of, you know, celebrity I'm sure she's a nice person. I don't know her or anything else. Um, I did actually have a drink, drinks with some friends and Mandy Moore many years ago. She was actually quite nice. Uh, oh, and I saw, since we're talking celebrities, which I never do on the show, I saw Gerard Butler on my way to get coffee this morning. Guy definitely couldn't play Leonidas anymore. That's all I can tell you. Uh, I don't know how they do that. I don't know how they do that. They They add like 30 pounds of muscle before they play some of these roles. I know people say, oh, they have this really good workout routine. I know enough about workout routines to know that I mean, unless you're spending like four to six hours a day in the gym, it's really hard to uh, completely transform a physique from being like a normal looking dude to just a muscle bound specimen. But there's also uh, HGH, which I'm sure can kind of help in some of these circumstances. I'm just saying, side note, uh, so Hillary Duff would you know just uh, this and you got to know like if you're a celebrity tweeting out your your costume uh as i said i was ron swanson i'm not tweeting out any photos of that that's just for me uh, i was an amazing ron swanson though i mean the hair was perfect uh, and i had quite a uh, quite a bushy mustache going on uh but uh, you got to know if you're a celebrity and you're going to tweet out photos of your costume that you're just at, you're really unless you're co- I, actually i don't even know what's safe anymore since Harambe costumes, as we heard from uh, one of our guests earlier in the week, are banned, Harambe's a gorilla, so you can't wear a gorilla costume. What other animals are banned? If I went out as a as a purple dinosaur, am I am I appropriating dinosaur culture or being insensitive to the to species extinction? I don't really understand why. why where do we draw these lines? Hillary Duff was out, and this is from Bizpack Review. Um, she was out in her boy. She was wearing a pilgrim costume. I think she could get away with the pilgrim costume. I think that probably would be all right. I don't think that's going to cause too much in the way of issues, right? Pilgrims are white. They're Puritans or whatever, but, you know, eh. I think you'd probably get a pass on the pilgrim costume situation. Her boyfriend, whom I've never heard of before, uh, is dressed in sort of classic... uh, appropriate you know a classic uh, quote appropriated native american garb 
He's got the big uh, headdress on with the feathers and the sort of, you know, the fringe leather stuff and everything else. And everybody freaked out about it. Everybody had a little freak out. Social media. I'm trying to see. What are some of the quotes here? Uh, oh, she has to go out. Hillary Duff has to go out and say, I'm so sorry to people I offended with my costume. It was not properly thought through, and I'm truly from the bottom of my heart sorry. First of all, her costume is fine. I mean, you can't be a Puritan. Uh, why, why is that an issue? But I, it was really, I guess, for her husband or for her boyfriend, rather. And you get other people here saying things like people's culture isn't a Halloween costume. Even natives, do, even natives don't wear stuff like that except for ceremonies. OK, so if it's just ceremonial garb, you're not really making fun of anybody. You're wearing a sort of ceremonial costume as a costume. So why is that a problem? What's the big deal? These people have no sense of humor. Uh, someone else tweets out here in this in this compilation. This is the problem. Halloween doesn't give you a pass to wear a racist getup. Don't dress however you like. Uh, and then somebody else wrote, because making light of the oppression of a whole race is okay? Question mark. Where where do these people? What is wrong with everybody that does this stuff? That gets so. First of all, how do they have the energy and the time? I guess they don't have enough real problems in life that they feel the need to latch on to problems that are constructs that aren't real issues and to become outraged about them. I, I guess outrage feels good. It makes people happy to do this. I mean, the social justice warriors have ruined so much and now they won't be content until they've ruined Halloween as well. And you're going to always have to sit around and think to yourself, well, and not even kids are safe when it comes to the social justice warriors. It's not even like your kid can dress up as Pocahontas or as something else. I mean, look, we all know there are limits, right? I mean, the uh, this came up in the in the article. I think Glenn talked about it this morning on radio. I saw uh, saw some tweets about it about the young woman who her life was ruined because she of a tweet, and it was look, it was a stupid tweet, but it was it was a tweet, uh, and her life was ruined. She she wrote something about you know how she wasn't going to get AIDS because she was white when she was going to Africa. That yet yeah, she was working for IAC, which is a big uh, media media company, owns, I think owns Match.com. I think it also owns Tinder, as well as a lot of other properties. I think it owns the Daily Beast. Uh, so she tweeted something out, it ruined her life, and um, somebody else that had the sort of life-ruined situation was someone who shared a photo uh, dressed as a victim of the Boston Marathon bombing. Yeah, that's like I I would actually there are lines, right? I mean, I I find that offensive too, and I I don't find a whole lot offensive. I mean, there are lines, but the that just because there are some rules doesn't mean there should be endless rules, right? Just because there are judgment isn't isn't a pass to constantly be a grievance monger. Um, so I mean, dressing as as Pocahontas or as uh, as a pilgrim or as any of this stuff. This should be well within the bounds of, you know, all in good fun. But they, there's nothing's in good. The only thing that's fun for social justice warriors is sitting at home on their laptops and on their you know, smartphones and just freaking out about things, getting so angry about whatever the latest on the outrage machine is. And this is what they do. This is just how they conduct themselves. I, I wish everybody would just take a collective chill. But even Halloween now, you just got to be careful. Uh, 888-900-3393. Team, anything you want to talk about? Fair game. Uh, just going to get into a few sort of closing topics here in the last half hour of the show today. 
be great to hear from you. Light up those lines. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back in action in the Freedom Hunt. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So I, I just thought this was an interesting little piece uh, in Politico a couple of days ago. <laughs> it's sort of like part of being here in New York City. And, I, and I'm not like a vocal Trump supporter at all. I kind of walk around shrugging my shoulders, looking at people going, I mean, what, what are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's a crazy world we live in right now. Um, but the piece in Politico is how Donald Trump change the dating world uh which look usually I, I see this kind of stuff and it's maybe a little clickbaity and i and i don't try to uh get sucked in but this one did kind of suck me in because i think this is in a sense a bellwether of sentiment and what the real push has been all along for the uh for the trump campaign it's really to make voting for trump socially unacceptable you know if you can do enough of that then all the policy stuff doesn't matter i, I felt like this has been the the plan all along anyway let's talk about some fun stuff for a second here too though uh all this is fun stuff well i mean not all of it's fun stuff but all of it's interesting stuff i like to think so uh but politics is like an old boyfriend the piece starts you don't bring it up on the first date but because things are so divisive right now more and more women, according to these dating gurus and dating experts and people that sort of run matchmaking sites and things like that, uh, more of them than ever are openly broaching the subject on a, you know, they're, they're going after it on a first date. They want to know, are you a Trump supporter? Because for lots of women, that has become a total no-go. It is unacceptable to be a Trump supporter. It's not a difference of opinion thing. It's not a you have your politics and I have mine. It is if you like Donald Trump, you are a bad person and I cannot socialize with you. Um, and they, they give, some, uh, they give some, some anecdotes in this, which I find, I find pretty amusing. Uh, they have one woman who plans to vote for Hillary Clinton, of course, big surprise, uh, says that supporting Trump after that that tape surface with Billy Bush is tantamount to excusing that behavior. She says she has dated Republicans before, but actively avoids anyone voting for the party's nominee this year. If she comes across an online dating profile that mentions support for Trump, she swipes left. On a date, she works the election in, in, into the conversation just to make sure I think it's one thing to be a Republican and it's one thing to support Donald Trump, Oldenburg said. Well, I mean, she may have something of a point there, but man, politics getting in the way of romance. Such a sad thing, isn't it? You think that people could see beyond that. Uh, although as I've gotten older, I, I will say that I found that you can disagree with someone you're dating. I'm sorry, you can uh, scratch that. You can agree with someone you're dating on a majority of major political issues or 
one or both of you can be apathetic. But if you are in deep opposition, I find that to, in my personal experience, I find that to be a hard situation. Uh, I find that to lead to more conflict than one would think. And if you have two people who are really politically interested and active, you're just going to fight all the time, which, you know, maybe for some people, they like the passion. But uh, that's, you know, if you, if you want to get a good night's sleep and be, be a happy, well-adjusted person in your relationship, I think it's tough to be in a constant state of fighting. I know there are, like, some famous political couples, too. I can't think of who they are, but I know there are a few. And you're going to all start tweeting at me the answers to this who are a you know, prominent Democrat, a prominent Republican, which makes me think that in some of those instances, one or both of those people maybe view it as mostly for show, right? That this is kind of a public persona thing. Because if you're talking about deeply held uh, beliefs, I mean, things that really matter to you, I would think it's kind of hard to uh, turn around to somebody and say, well, we totally disagree on that issue, but, you know, NBD, no big deal. You have your way and I have mine. I would think that that would be uh, that would be a tough one to pull off. But, yeah, this is the year of dating. Trump is unacceptable. Being a Trump supporter is a uh, complete it is a deal breaker for a lot of women in, I assume, in, in the predominantly blue areas of the country. Um, and it's it's a shame. And it's one of these things that comes up when you're in New York City and you sit around, you're thinking to yourself, you're like, well, I do feel like I'm surrounded by lunatics here. And that's certainly the case. There are lots of uh, lots of the crazies going on um, when it comes to their politics I'm talking about. But you'd like to at least hope that everyone can sort of put politics aside. And, you know, if two people have the look of love is such a I forget what the how the song goes, but you think that that could overcome all, but it can't. And being a Trump supporter is now evidence of a character flaw. It's not just a difference of political opinion. I've seen this myself. I've heard this from people. I've had people tell me uh, that they won't hang out with Trump supporters or they can't be around them. And it just strikes me as both childish and, you know, disheartening that anybody would take such a, uh, a definitive position on what is a very complicated issue. I think we could all agree it's very complicated. Jim in Maryland, save me from my dating discussion. What's up? <laughs> Buck Shields High, how you doing? Shields High, man. All right, what I wanted to say was, uh, well, Jim Comey, I wanted to say, uh, despite his flaws, uh, and, he, and he has many, like I'm trying to turn the other cheek and look positive, and he's like Harrison Ford like as Jack Ryan, like truth needs a soldier. I was like, please be that guy. Like, he's going to be the guy that uh, stands up. You know what? Because he has everything to lose, I would think, uh, especially so you, you now. Think Comey, you think Comey's standing up and speaking truth to power here? That's that's your your assessment of what's going on? I really hope that it is uh, because it, it kind of I, – I just don't understand why he would be doing it otherwise. Hmm. Interesting. Like, I, why, I, he, all, he had, all he had to do was like, sit down and shut up. But now, if if Hillary wins, like he's in a, a bit of trouble, I, w- I would think. Like certainly, like he's not going to be the looked upon favorably. Uh, if well, it all depends on what what comes of the investigation at this stage. I'm I'm of the mind that none of the stuff they look at on on Huma Abedin's laptop 
uh, although I think Anthony Weiner's in a lot of trouble. Side note, uh, but I'm so. I'm of the mind, you know. I mean, I, I think Anthony Weiner's going away. For not that anybody I think particularly cares, but I think he's going away. I think he's I think he's in oh deep, I care. Deep trouble. I, I want him to go away, and I want well to yeah. But I'm just saying it's not a matter oh. it's not a matter of like national security importance or or you know I don't think it's going to sway the election one way or the other. Um, but right. uh, yeah, I think he's I think he's toast, as they say. I think he's going to go away for quite a while. Um, as to yeah. Huma Abedin, though, on the what could they find? You know, actually, I give my I give my dad credit uh, when I was talking to him. I was like, look, I don't see anything that they can they can find on this stuff that would have any kind of an impact. He goes, well, the only thing that would really do it is if they have direct evidence of the cover up. But I have to say, we got Podesta saying dump the emails, and no one cares about that. So I, I just feel like we're in the uh, it doesn't matter zone with all this Hillary stuff. There's, it, I, I cannot conceive of anything that the FBI finds on in Huma Abedin's communications with Hillary Clinton that forces them to take action. Because, and I just point to what they already know, and they haven't taken action. So why is it? You know what I'm saying, Jim? What would be different? What could be different? They already have TS material in there. Nothing. They already have plenty of dots to connect for a quid pro quo case. So, I mean, I guess you'd have to have a uh, an email that says, hey, we're doing this for this donor and we're taking an official action and we know it's illegal. That's possible that they'd said that. I don't think they're that dumb, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I, I don't think they are. But uh, I, I can only think, like, why would why would it come out and do this? But uh, I, I hope you're – well, I mean, I hope that uh, – things go the way you want but i think you're right as well uh the the other thing that i wanted to mention uh, part two from this as far as like a nation divided that you mentioned man i'm 40 and uh, i've never seen people just social media especially like you talk about trump supporters or, or anything partially conservative man they jump all over you it's insane like people i've known since i was you know for 20 years like oh you just must be a this, that, and the other thing. Man, I, <laughs> I've i never seen it like this ever, ever. Yeah, I've been, Jim, and I've been quiet uh, on social media, quieter on social media this year than in previous years, largely because uh, Twitter is not fun when it turns into, you know, curses and death threats and, and horrible stuff. And and that's, even on the, even if you're making jokes on the Republican side and, and you're doing it uh, you know, tongue in cheek, you, you'll get some look. It's it's mostly the Trump supporters that do it. Although it's not all Trump supporters. Uh, they just get crazy over this stuff. You know, you, you make and you make a comment educated. about you, you say what you think is true. Maybe you make a little joke and it doesn't mean that you're voting for Hillary. It doesn't mean you're a, you know, you're a sellout conservative or whatever. But people do not have have not had a sense of humor this election at all. So it just makes this stuff not fun. No, they, they really have. And, and the people that are Especially, uh, not to say this, but especially liberals, they, they, they simply have no facts. Well, they've always they been that way, right? But I, I'm. It used to be that I would get when I made fun of Hillary or I said something about progressives or Democrats. You know, you get a couple of angry Democrats who would say, you know, I look like a Lego man, or they want to punch me in the face or something, and, and you sort of just, <laughs> you know, you, yeah, exactly. You you push that under the rug. Um, if you get people though that are generally speaking, kind of supposed to be on your team and, and they're freaking out at you, too. That feels weird. Now you're like, OK, what what is the what is the problem here? And it's been it's been really bad all year. I mean, I will say this. I will breathe a sigh of relief after Election Day because at least we'll kind of be entering a new phase. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's a better phase, but at least it's a new phase. 
because the phase we've been in the last year is there are far there's a very loud minority of Trump supporters who are way too nasty, uh, particularly to people like me who work in in politics and analysis and some sort of a public capacity. And they're just insane. And you got to deal with that and the Democrats who hate you. So it just makes it not fun. Have you do you feel like you've like any friendships of yours have changed as a result of all this, by the way? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I, from my, my sister, <laughs> that's terrible to say, uh, I'm about four years old. She's about 36. She's a teacher, uh, teaches, uh, high school. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the liberal posts and I, I, I give her a hard time, uh, you know, since we've been growing up. Uh, but now it seems to be that we don't, we really don't talk so much. We don't, you know, she's uh, Hey, Joe Biden's great. And I'm like, uh, come on, Kate, really, <laughs> you know? And that and that sort of thing, and then I realize she really, what's going on here, you know? So yeah, there's there's been and, and things like that, you know, especially on Facebook, you know, folks I see uh, occasionally. I'm like, man, this is what they really think. That's uh, that's troubling to say the least. Yeah. Well, hopefully you and your sister after the election, after what looks like, well, who knows who's going to win? <laughs> but you know, you guys can go out to dinner and hug it out, and it'll all be better. That's my advice. And Jim from Maryland, great, great to talk to you. Uh, we we love about, each other. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look, he said he loves his sister. That's so nice. Thank you, Jim. There we go. It was a little happy moment there. We love each other, as you should. Don't let politics get in the way of that stuff. Man, everyone just needs to hug it out over all of this. I kind of think that people need to view politics more the way that they... I know it has impact in your life and their life and death situations and there's matters of war and peace and everything else, fine. But as much as you can, especially on the sillier stuff, it should be more like sports, an entertaining diversion that you know keeps your mind off of having to pay the bills and long commutes to and from work and all that other stuff that is not exactly exciting, but is a, a uh, reality of daily life for many of us. So I would say you know, that would be a nice way to try to think of some of these things now. I'm also amused when people try to bait me into conversations in social settings about this. I'm just like, you, you really, I talk about this for three hours a day, every day. I write about this. I go on TV to talk about this and, and I do this for a living. I really don't want to sit at a dinner party and wax philosophical about, you know, the Trump campaign or anything else for that matter that deals with this stuff. I want to talk about my favorite TV shows. I've been watching Spartacus recently, by the way, which I never saw on Netflix. Mm, eh, shaky, shaky. Uh, way too much of the, like, splatter blood stuff, which after a while just gets kind of gross. Uh, I also bailed. I didn't watch Walking Dead this past weekend because the last one upset me so much. So uh, I think I think I might have bailed on The Walking Dead unless some of you tell me that I need to get back into it and give it a shot. All right. Go to a break and we're going to close on the other side. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Dave in Minnesota, we got about a minute, but I want to get you in. What's up, my friend? Sorry, I got to be fast and furious, no pun intended. Um, just got a comment because I'm a podcast listener. Uh, yesterday, Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, Northern Minnesota, it happened in, uh, I don't know, 60s or something. I actually had a neighbor whose uh, father passed away on that. It was overloaded with steel ore. Thanks. Very sad. Uh, quick question on Hillary with uh, foreign policy, North Korea, 
and ISIS. I mean, if if she does get in, war game that for us real quick. Dave, how about I'll do this? I'm going to take your question, and I'll war game a Hillary foreign policy tomorrow because we literally have about 45 seconds. But I wanted you to get in. You did. Thank you for calling in, my friend. Shields high. Um, so someone remind me tomorrow that uh, I said I would tackle a uh, what a Hillary foreign policy looks like, which will be interesting because I don't even think Hillary knows what a Hillary foreign policy would look like. It depends on whatever is useful at the time for her, uh, which is how she does pretty much everything. Also going to be looking to take in some other stories from you know around the country and around the world tomorrow that aren't just election related. So if you got any ideas, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I'll be uh, going through messages tonight. And I uh, would love to uh, hear from you on there. also want to say happy birthday to my mom, the best lady in the world. Happy birthday, mom. She listens to the show usually. Team, until tomorrow, as always, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.